Brought to you by Feitner Productions. From the Unreasonable Doubt Studios, in association with Feitner Productions, this is Laying Down the Law! With your host, Billy DeClerc, and co-hosts, Kristen Drenning and Curtis Rutherford. Featuring a jury of genius jokesmiths and paneled with the help of Publishers Clearinghouse, auditors from the firm of DCH Lottery Management, and selected by random draw from a hermetically sealed mayonnaise jar every Tuesday and Thursday at half past never. Only a madman would bring these people together to construct an entire virtual world of law and order simply to tear it asunder with ruckus laughter. That madman is attorney Billy DeClerc. The result is a podcast blasted to the farthest reaches of the interwebs. That podcast is this one, and it starts right now. Welcome to the Laying Down the Law, a comedy podcast hosted by me, a lawyer, and potentially a comedian, Billy DeClerc. And I'm co-host Kristen Drenning, also an actual lawyer, a storyteller, improviser, and general gal about town in Austin, Texas. And I'm co-host Curtis Rutherford, the co-host of this podcast and the creator of Improv Beat by Beat, the audio interview textbook of improv comedy, and also the non-legal, non-improv book, laser-focused on SAT math. And I am not a lawyer, so do not come to me with your legal needs. <laughs> Actually, don't come to any of us for legal needs. Nothing that yep. we say today constitutes legal advice, may not be relied upon for any purpose. And should you be injured as a result of following any of the advice on this podcast, you may not sue us. We'll sue you. <laughs> well, I'm glad to have my co-host today. We're changing the format a little bit so we don't have any guests, but we're going to be trying some new stuff. But first, let's take a break to thank and acknowledge our supporters. Here's the story of coronavirus. When the government was clearly unprepared, all of us had heard the You're on mute. Live comedy the second Saturday of every month at the Pack Theater in Hollywood. Thank you to our supporters. And with the end, any further ado, let's get into it. The case of the week is United States versus Hadley. This is a 1958 case out of the 10th Circuit. It's a federal court case. And for those of you who didn't take federal civil procedure, um, which I'm assuming is many listeners, the 10th Circuit is a federal appellate court that covers Colorado, Kansas, New Mexico, Oklahoma, Utah, and Wyoming. And this case occurred in Utah. The background of the case involves conflicts between farmers and the Navajo Indians in Utah. The plaintiffs in the case are eight families of Navajo Indians who lived for generations on open range land that was quote unquote owned 
by the United States. And their livestock grazed on public lands along with livestock owned by whites who held grazing permits. The United States and the white cattle ranchers considered the Indians, and side note, in federal jurisdiction, Indians is the legally accurate term, um, even though it's outdated. Some people would consider it offensive, but that's the term that's used in in sort of in the law. So Indians is a, is a legal term of art. I'm referring to the native people of this great land of ours. United States sued to eject them from the public lands. While those lawsuits were still going on, the government rounded up all of the Navajos horses and burros and sold them to a glue factory. Ugh. It's terrible. Law and comedy podcast, folks. <laughs> Federal law required that the so-called trespassers had to be given notice and an opportunity to remove their animals before there was a roundup, but no notice was given. So the Supreme Court of the United States held that that was a trespass applying Utah law, and we don't even need to get into the Erie Doctrine <laughs> when you apply state versus federal law. Because the United States violated the law, the Navajo families were permitted to file a lawsuit against the United States under a statute called the Federal Tort Claims Act. That's a lot to digest. The Federal Tort Claims Act is a federal law which waives sovereign immunity. Sovereign immunity means you can't sue the government. The government's immune from lawsuits. Sovereign immunity can be waived in certain situations. And so there's this law that um, was passed that says you can um, file a lawsuit against the government in this scenario. So that's how we get here. Now, this is from my remedies textbook. Remedies is often taught as a third year class. I took it in the third year. It's one of my favorite classes. So remedies are the reason people go to court in the first place is how are you going to fix it? I often tell people that the law isn't really good at fixing real world problems. It's good at moving money from one place to another. And usually that's how we solve most problems. That's the the, the remedy is... Um, we're going to take money from one party and we're going to give it to the other. Some things right. can't be remedied that way. Um, and so the whole course in remedies is what are the different ways that you can try to make people whole? The idea being of a lawsuit is that you're going to put the plaintiff, if the plaintiff wins, in the same position that they would have been in if they hadn't been harmed. That's the basic rule of tort remedies is uh, the status quo ante that you put the person back the way they would have been before you rear-ended their car or, or uh, you know, um, hit them with a, you know, a mallet or, you know, caught their finger in a meat grinder or whatever else nasty thing happens. Try to replace, you know, what's the value of their bodily injuries? What's the um, value of, of getting hit by a mallet? What's the cost of a finger lost in a meat grinder? And those things are very inexact. That's the context that we find ourselves in here. The issue in this case then was the damages to the Navajo families based upon the loss of their horses and burros. So we are at this phase in the case, basically presuming the government's liable. They're going to have to pay something. And the question is, how much? The basic rule of damages in this case, and it's a tort case. Tort is an involuntary relationship, not like a contract relationship typically an accident or an injury or some kind of a wrong, um, not the delicious dessert. For those of you <laughs> who have been listening for a while, you'll know that. Or if you went to law school, you know that. But what 
measure would be required to put the Navajo families in the position that they would have been in if their animals hadn't been wrongfully taken and sold to a glue factory. Ugh. Sorry. On the behalf of every like young girl on the planet, I'd say that's impossible to do, right? Those right. poor ponies. Because nothing's funny about selling animals for glue. We're going to take a break. And when we come back, we're going to do Comedy Court, <laughs> a new feature on this podcast. Here's the story of coronavirus. When the government was clearly unprepared, all of us had heard the You're on mute. Live comedy the second Saturday of every month at the Pack Theater in Hollywood. And we're back. Welcome to Comedy Court, Judge Billy presiding. Today we have the case of the United States versus Hadley. Arguing on behalf of the Hadleys, we have attorney Kristen Drenning. And arguing on behalf of the United States of America, we have non-attorney Curtis Rutherford. The question presented to the court today is what is the value of the um, burrows and ponies that were sold for glue by the bad United States? And how much is the United States going to have to pay the Hadleys and others based upon their uh, tortious behavior? Uh, can I object to the judge <laughs> saying bad United States? Is that allowed? <laughs> uh, you absolutely uh, may object. Your objection is noted and overruled. <laughs> but the United States is terrible and what they did is despicable. Mm -hmm. Just letting you know, that's that's my point of view. That's got nothing to do with the case. I'm not biased at all, but but it's absolutely disgusting what the United States has done in this case. But by all means, you're going to get a fair, fair hearing today. So don't worry about it, United States, big bad government, you. Oppressing I just the like to people. emphasize on the record how disgusting and bad this behavior was because it was shocking to the nth degree and devastating. And as a fictional uh, representative of the United States, I would also like to say, yes, it was absolutely terrible and awful, but I think that doesn't affect the damages, but we'll get to that. Oh. Absolutely. Well, plaintiff, uh, as the prevailing party here entitled to damages, um, the court will hear argument based upon what the measure of damages should be for these some 350 horses and burrows that were wrongfully destroyed by the United States. So I think the most important thing that we note is that this is not just an everyday person who's lost their pony. And, I, and I'd say everybody loves a pony if they have one, but especially to this, this Navajo tribe, they were a part of the family. They were, I mean, intrinsic to their everyday life. They were more important to them than I think historically you could point to any other culture. Like really, these were about as intrinsic as they could get to everything. So they were just completely devastated by this loss. Like these are really great, like like well-trained horses that helped them, like facilitated all of their lifestyle. And then they just get in one fell swoop, turned into glue. 
like, can you imagine the amount of pain that that would cause? It's honestly, it's impossible to imagine. And also, I mean, those horses are pretty much irreplaceable. So can you fix a dollar amount? Um, I mean, I think that's the the real trouble is like, you have to look at like, how would their entire lives go now that they are like, they have no access to these horses that they relied upon for all of their commercial activities. I mean, and they're just their livelihood in general. I, I, it's almost impossible. You can't just say like, oh, you can replace them because these horses are irreplaceable. And also every day that they're not there is going to be felt acutely and, and it's going to be felt in the economic sense that they're not going to be making the money they would have been able to, to support themselves. So I guess it would be just sort of how much were they used to their lifestyle before this horrible like deprivation occurred. And then also some amount of pain and suffering. Pain and suffering and the loss of the, the horses. So, uh, counsel, I'm in no way biased towards the plaintiff, but I'm entirely inclined to award you pretty much whatever you ask for. So based upon that compelling argument, what would you like to ask for as uh, damages in this case? Well, again, these horses are irreplaceable. It's impossible to fix a value for them. But I, I would say at least, ooh, I don't know. This is a tough one. Uh, I think maybe $5,000 per plaintiff uh, for pain and suffering. And then... $350 or so per horse, something along those lines. And that's your final request. Subject to review. <laughs> well, I'll hear the United States argument, mm -hmm. but I'll just I'll just tip my hand. I would have given up to a million dollars per horse had you asked, but you asked Ooh. for $350. Ooh. I was so persuaded and compelled by the force of your argument that Thank I have you. no really no choice but to award you whatever you asked for. But, you know, congratulations on asking for so paltry of an amount <laughs> when I was willing to award much, much, much more. United oh. States, represented by uh, Mr. Rutherford, please proceed. Irreplaceable? Irreplaceable is what we have been told over and again uh, about these horses. But here's the thing. I've gone through goldfish after goldfish after goldfish. My children think they've had one goldfish for 27 years. I have a 27-year-old, very dumb child. But as far as he's concerned, he's had one goldfish over and over and over again, and I can easily replace it. Now I know what you're saying. A horse is better than a goldfish. Of course it is. But still, if you put a horse in front of me, closed my eyes, switched it with the different identically colored and sized horse, I would go, well, that's the same horse. I can't tell the difference between horses after a certain amount. Now, maybe it's because it's a pet. Sure. Maybe you get to know it more. So we can then talk about the use of it, right? Because obviously this is used. Now, it being, I believe, 1952-ish, uh, my calendar broke. But it, let's say it's around 1950, or is it 1957? Whatever, somewhere in you, that range, in the 50s, somewhere in that range. We're Again, my calendar in the 50s. 58. I only have a decade calendar, which only tells me the current <laughs> decade and no more information. Uh, it was cheap. I bought one, it has eight pages, and hopefully it'll last me my lifetime. But we can easily replace horses also oh. in terms of use. In fact, there is. Uh, an invention which can replace not merely one horse, not merely 10 horses, but has up to, I'm going to say, 500 power of horses contained within it. Objection, and objection. This is all predicated on the on the idea that the Navajo were traveling roads and therefore could use cars, which I think is is counterfactual in the Council, yeah. council, we'll, we'll yeah. Uh, instruct you to hold your argument. I'll, I'll reserve some time for rebuttal. All right. 
That's fine. I'll, we'll reserve mm -hmm. some time for rebuttal, um, and we'll uh, let uh, Mr. Rutherford finish his argument, and then we'll proceed from there. Now, of course, you're right. They're not merely traveling on roads. However, we also have to take into account the fact that any other replacement wouldn't require the same time and cost that a horse would. A horse, you're constantly pouring oats into it. You're brushing it over and over again. This is lost time, lost money. So I hold that we actually have helped the Hadleys by removing a cost sink from them. And as such, I, I'm going to say they should be awarded, let's say, negative $500 each. They should be paying us approximately $500. We also shipped them to the glue factory for free. That was a free, <sighs> free shipment. So I, as the government, again, are representing the government, which, although in many ways terrible, and in pretty much every sense in this way, we can all agree, wrong and terrible, I'm going to say silver lining. <laughs> I appreciate the force of your argument, and um, I'll say the. I think there's a word chutzpah. I think of <laughs> um, uh, plaintiff. Since you got to go first, and since I clearly favor you in every way, because what was done was terribly, terribly wrong. I'm going to give you a chance for rebuttal. I mean, I think it's. I think it's very clear that this is a very glib attempt to. <sighs> somehow diminish the importance of these actual per, like individual horses to this, these four affected plaintiffs. I mean, come on, they raised these horses from, from infancy. They fed them oats. They brushed them. That amount of care is, is in depth. It's because they loved and cherished them. Also, they were training them during this time. You can't just like swap out horses and expect that every horse is going to know, for example, how to walk along a very narrow trail, which I'm sure is certainly a part of what their duties were. But more importantly, I don't think the government has any right to tell us that we like have to be more efficient in our choices of like animals that we care for or livestock that we raise, right? If we choose to have an inefficient quote unquote animal, that's not a car. That's our choice. The government doesn't get to turn our, our animals into glue and then give us a car. That's not, that's not equal compensation at all. Council, after hearing both sides and being completely fair-minded and in no way biased whatsoever for either side, um, I'm going to just comment that I think that what the United States did here is uh, horrible, monstrous, atrocious, cruel, cold-blooded depredation and done with no sense of decency. Yeah. As such, I'm going to award $350 million to the Navajos yes. in compensatory damages and $350 million in punitive damages. Oh, yeah. <laughs> I'm sure the United States can just borrow money and pay that off. So we'll be fine here. Case concluded. First of all, uh, what do we think of my judging? Before we move on. Excellent. Yeah. Uh, very fair. Mm -hmm. uh, uh, terrible. I think you should be removed from the bench. <laughs> <laughs> Perfect. Well, in the, in this case, the district court, that's the trial court in the federal judicial system. The district court awarded each plaintiff $3,500 for pain and suffering. So the judgment against the United States in the actual case was $186,017.50. The value for each horse and burrow was $395, and each plaintiff received $3,500 for pain and suffering. In addition, the district court gave damages for one half the value of the diminution of the, the herds of sheep, goats, and cattle between the dates the horses and burrows were taken in 1952 and the date of the last hearing in 1957. 
So in essence, what the district court said is that because the plaintiffs didn't have use of the horses and burrows, they weren't able to maintain their flocks. And so it diminished the value. And the court said that one half of that diminution of value was awarded to the plaintiffs. So pretty one-sided in favor of the plaintiffs. The Court of Appeal starts by saying that the fundamental job here is to um, put the plaintiff in the position that they would have been if they'd not been injured. And so what they should have been awarded was the market value or the replacement cost of the horses um, and burrows at the time they were taken, plus the use value of the animals that they would have had during the time they could have reasonably replaced the animals. The 10th Circuit, and continuing to hose the tribes, um, said that the plaintiffs failed to show the replacement cost of the animals, but basically said they couldn't be replaced because they had particular nature and training. However, there was some testimony that a horse could be traded and they came up with an estimated value of $395 per head, but there was no consideration given to what the replacement cost is. The district court didn't consider the availability of other horses and burrows that were in the local area and what the value. And the 10th Circuit said that that was a mistake. What they should have done, according to the 10th Circuit, is the the trial court should have considered what it would have cost to get new horses and burrows with similar training. And they should consider all the different elements that go together to make up like value. So basically rejected the idea that these animals were special or had some particular value that was above and beyond what it was to replace them. The loss of use, essentially, the Court of Appeal completely rejected the argument there and said basically that there was no connection between the loss of use of the animals and the diminution of value of the herd, that had they just gotten new animals, they could have maintained the herd and they could have shown loss of profits. And so they completely threw out how the court arrived at the loss of use determination. It's interesting that all of these are, we think that they speculated too much. So we're going to speculate our other speculate. We're going <laughs> to, we right. think they speculated these were irreplaceable. I'm going to speculate that they were replaceable. We're throwing it out, right? Mm-hmm. There's like, oh, 50% seems arbitrary. So we're going to give 0% yeah. another arbitrary number we've chosen. Right. Well, and there, so there's a, there's a procedural aspect. So what happens um, when you have an appeal, um, something like this where there's been fact finding at the trial court level the court of appeal basically says that was bad fact finding go back and do more fact finding with this guidance um and so um at the end of the opinion you know they're reversing and then what's called reversing is you overturn what it was before obviously and then uh it's followed by a procedure called remand and remand is when the appellate court says to the trial court go back and do your job again but do it this way, the way we're telling you to do it. So we're, we're correcting your errors of the law. We're not going to find the facts. We're not going to take evidence. There isn't evidence here for us to reach a new opinion. So we're going to, you have to go back and use these rules, which we're telling you, these are the rules and go back and do it again. So there's uh, the possibility then during remand that they, if they find out, oh, a similarly priced horse is actually $10,000, then it could have been way more. It's just right. they just have to find it under these new rules that the 
Right. Bring new evidence of, you know, using these rules for the evidence. Yeah. I find it very telling, though, that in this case, they remanded and instructed the judge at the lower court to recuse himself. They were just like, nope, you have no more say in this, I guess. Yeah. Yeah. That was, I was going to, um, <laughs> yeah, we're going to, that's a, a policy point at the end is, is the, the recusal point. Um, you know, in a case about remedies, um, kicking off the trial judge. Um, but yeah, the, the 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 court of appeals said that the loss of use value was arbitrary, pure speculation, and purely erroneous because they didn't take into consideration um, what was done with the herds, how they were sold, what their what the value was at time point A versus time point B. There was just no evidence of that. So the evidence by the plaintiffs said that losing their animals made it difficult for them to obtain and transport water, wood, food, and game. They were less able to travel for medical care and to tribal council meetings and ceremonies, and they weren't able to grow crops and gardens as extensively as before. The court says these were factors on which the damages for loss of use could have been based, but they don't establish what those losses were, a measure of what the position they would have been in versus um, what their actual position is. So you have to go back and show that. But the Court of Appeal hoses the plaintiffs yet again by saying the time of the loss of use is going to be limited by the amount of time that passed between when they were wrongfully taken from you and the time at which you could have reasonably replaced those animals. So five years was way too long. We need to find out how you need to have evidence as to how quickly replacements could have been procured and trained if necessary and, you know, enabled you to to do all these things that you were going to use the horses and burrows for. That strikes me as really harsh because they were operating on the assumption that they didn't have to replace them because they were pursuing this lawsuit, right? I mean, they might have taken some steps in the interim to do that if they had known that that was going to come back to bite them. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And this, yeah. Br this brings in the theory of mitigation of damages, just that you're required by law, if you're an injured plaintiff to take a reasonable amount of steps to mitigate your damages. So if you are suing because you were wrongfully terminated, that doesn't mean you get to sit at home and watch, you know, I love Lucy reruns and eat bonbons on the couch until you win. You're supposed to go out and try and find another job. And if you don't do that, then the jury or the judge could hear evidence about, well, what would be a reasonable amount of time for you to find a new job, depending on the job market, et cetera, and come to some limitation. Um, it's not just a license to to give up. And, and they're good policy reasons for a mitigation of damages theory, because you don't want people taking advantage of their harm and, you know, figuring, well, you know, I was hit by a car and I gave my case to Larry H. Parker. I'll just sit around for my $2.1 million, right? You want, uh, you want people to be um, you know, not wallowing in it. Finally, uh, the, the Court of Appeal turns the screws on the plaintiffs in another way, which is that um, this pain and suffering or mental pain and suffering, the evidence was that the plaintiffs were frightened and they were sick at heart. Their dignity suffered and some of them cried. Some of them mourned the loss of their animals for a long period of time, reading directly from the case. The district court seemed to think that because the horses and burrows played such an important part in the Indians' lives, the grief and hardships were the same as to each. 
The equal award to each plaintiff was based upon the grounds. It was not possible to separately evaluate the mental pain and suffering to each individual. And then it was a community loss and a community sorrow. The Court of Appeal says, no, pain and suffering is an individual um, and personal matter, not a common injury and must be so treated. And damages for mental pain and suffering usually has to be based upon a physical injury. And it says only in extreme cases can pain and suffering be awarded for a injury to property. Um, so this is where we get into some interesting law and policy issues because the law considers animals, including pets, to be property. And so um, if you're, you know, if you lose a pet whether it's a you know a, a working animal or just a, a companionship animal, the value of the loss under the law is that animals treated as property. So it's what it, what would it cost to be to buy another cocker spaniel, not what Fifi was worth to you. And so there's an interesting policy discussion there about whether it's morally right to treat animals as property. Well, I, I can understand how they wouldn't want as judges to be inundated with, I mean, can you imagine the kind of evidence that would have to be brought in to like show how important Fifi was, like like diary entries talking about Fifi, like, uh, like scrapbooks. I mean, it would be a very inexact sort of science, I guess. Still seems very harsh. Well, I mean, I think, so I guess we'll take a little loop in this direction. You know, my thought about the um, about this area is loss externality because it's it's in, indubitable that animals have emotional value to us, and there's it's I don't think there's any real question about that unless someone's never been a pet owner or they're a sociopath or something. But <laughs> but but there is some loss that suffered beyond the, you know, even a purebred animal, maybe it's a ten thousand dollar animal, but it's still worth a lot more. And people consider their animals part of their family and and they mourn them and they, you know, bury them and 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 all all that sort of thing. So there is a loss there that's above and beyond replacement value. And I think we kind of know intuitively there's something else there. It's not this like if you have a an animal that's worth ten thousand dollars and a Honda that's worth ten thousand dollars, you're not gonna I mean, I mean, maybe if you have stickers on it, but but pretty much people aren't gonna mourn the Honda. You know, you get another blue Honda or whatever, it's gonna be pretty much the same thing. Whereas, you know, and even though people name their cars and whatnot, but it's really different when you're talking about a pet and that they sleep in your bed and they, you know, do funny tricks and they bark at the Amazon packages all day long and interrupt every Zoom call, but you love them just the same. You call, your Honda doesn't do any of that. So we're making a policy choice that even though we know there's a loss there, we don't want to fix a value on it. And so we're going to allow the person who suffers the injury someone harms your pet, you're going to absorb the mental pain and suffering that loss because we've made this rule that we can't value it. We don't do the same thing to bystander injury of humans. If, so, if you witness someone you love get injured, you can sue for emotional distress, damages, and pain and suffering, mental pain and anguish. So it's difficult to calculate. It's speculative. It's hard to put a dollar figure on your love for 
another person or an animal, but we do it in other areas. But we've made a policy decision that we're not going to allow that evidence to even come in. We're not going to let someone fix a value. So it's interesting that the judges say like, oh, we rarely, except in extreme circumstances, would allow any property to have this pain and suffering thing. Other than a pet, what would be the more extreme circumstance uh, where a loss of property could, under this uh, very restrictive view, allow me some sort of pain and suffering recompense? Yeah, I mean, I think it would. um, I'm not sure. The rule would be based on. In this case, whatever Utah law was, but in in general, it would have to be something, you know, think of like an heirloom mm-hmm. or, um, uh, you know, desecration of a corpse. Mm-hmm. Um, it, you know, there you can get um, emotional distress damages for desecration of a corpse, mis- mishandling of a body. Um, so things where the quote unquote property involved, you know, isn't a living being with consciousness necessarily. Um, I mean, who knows what is consciousness anyway in the first place, but that's maybe a different podcast. Um, but, 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 but the point being that, that, you know, it's something that's close to the loss of a, the loss of a human life. And they kind of leave the door open here. They don't completely reject the idea of emotional distress damages, but they're looking for particularized proof as to each individual plaintiff. And there are eight families here. You know, what what kind of emotional distress was suffered by person A versus person B instead of a flat amount? I think they're they're hoping that by by shifting it to the individualized basis that they're going to make it like basically impossible for them to submit that kind of evidence. You know, at least some of them are not sophisticated enough. And also there might be sort of a volume of the claim, like how many animals are we talking about? How difficult would it be to prove for each and every single one for each individual person, how they felt about them? It's a lot to do, like a mountain of paperwork, I'm sure. Yeah. Pragmatically speaking, the, the, the court of appeal is putting a really heavy evidentiary burden on the plaintiff, the cost of trying to prove that and coming through with, you know, I, I don't know, it's the fifties. They may have photographic evidence. They may have records. They may not, it could be testimony. Um, but you know, it's, it just gets increasingly difficult, um, to, I mean, how do you place a dollar value on these kinds of losses and suffering? It just, it, it's, it is more or less speculation, um, and all we really, the only tool we have available to us is, is moving money from one place to another. So how do you decide the amount and how do you set rules? And so the district court is, is kind of exposing some of its biases and prejudice, which takes us to the, um, kind of the policy, uh, um, interesting, this recusal point that Kristen brought up separate and apart from these damages, the three, basically three categories of damages that the court of appeal says you can have replacement value it you know looking at each horse and burrow what what's the market value for each one and the loss of use value in a reasonable amount of time you know with a car it's it's easy right you think about your cars maybe your car is worth ten thousand dollars you can get blue book value it's relatively simple to find out especially if it's a you know a regular car and not customized. Okay, it'd probably take you a month or two to get a replacement card. During the interim, you need to pay for Uber or taxis or things like that. So your loss of use value is fairly easy to figure out. 
Um, you can just say, you know, we, I had to go to work every day. I go five miles to work every day. Um, you know, I needed to get my groceries and, you know, and that you could, you could add it up. And that's the kind of proof that they're looking for here. They're not really allowing the idea of diminution of value. That's a consequential damage that, that the inability to continue um, maintaining their herds and flocks and getting to the, you know, getting to the doctor or getting medical treatment or attending ceremonies, things like that. They're really kind of, they're setting a pretty high bar of proof there. And I think finally on this pain and suffering, which was one of the biggest elements of damages, actually, the court is specifically requiring individualized proof is essentially making it close to impossible to really prove. The final twist, the final challenge presented to the plaintiffs here is that the district court grants the request by the United States to recuse or disqualify the original trial court judge. And the reason, I'll just read from the case, a casual reading of the records leaves no room for doubt that the district judge was incensed and embittered, perhaps understandably so, by the general treatment over a period of years of the plaintiffs and other Indians in southeastern Utah by the governmental agents and white ranchers in their attempt to force the Indians onto established reservations. This was climaxed in the range clearance program. That's what we were talking about in the first place, taking the horses and burros, with instances of brutal handling and slaughter of their livestock, which the court during trial referred to as horrible, monstrous, atrocious, cruel, cold-blooded depredation and done without a sense of decency. The court firmly believed that the Indians were being wrongfully driven from their ancestral homes and suggested presidential and congressional investigations to determine their aboriginal rights. He threatened to conduct such an investigation himself. A public appeal on behalf of the plaintiffs was made for funds and supplies to be cleared through the judge's chambers. From his obvious interest in the case, illustrated by conduct and statements made throughout the trial, which need not be detailed further, we're certain the feeling of the presiding judge is that such upon retrial, he cannot give the calm, impartial consideration which is necessary for a fair disposition of this unfortunate matter, and he should step aside. They quote from a case, quote, the Indian problem is essentially a sociological problem, not a legal one. We can only make a pretense of adjudication of such claim and that only by judging the most unrealistic and fictional assumptions. And so the case should be heard before another judge. Even in that part, they they say he wrongly believed that the United States government was removing them from their land, already putting their own perspective on it and just saying flat out, he is wrong. And then dinging him for believing that. Yeah, I mean, the judge was outraged, so we can't have that. Also, I mean, I think there's like a pretty obvious tension between the fact that there this is a federal court applying uh, state law where the, obviously the state judge has much more interest or, or like the local t- judge will have much more interest in like what's happening in his area than like obviously these people up on the circuit level. Yeah, it reminds me there's a there's a federal court judge in Southern California named David O. Carter. Um, and if you read the LA Times, uh, he's getting a lot of coverage. He's gotten some attention because he got involved in some of the um, issues with uh, John Eastman the Trump lawyer who um, was subpoenaed and the subpoena was um, basically Judge David O'Carter was the one that said, it looks like this is evidence of sedition. He has taken a very aggressive approach 
um, toward the problem of unhoused persons in Orange County, personally inspecting and and he's basically taken jurisdiction over the whole issue and the or the uh, local governments and really um, tried to uh, enforce court orders and and really push local authorities to to deal with the problem. It's interesting this whole question of judicial activism and how far should a judge go? I would argue that usually cases end up in law school textbooks because they're wrongly decided in some way or they are controversial or they give you room to think, right? And here I think it's it's pretty clear from our perspective now that the Tenth Circuit was wrong and was probably acting on some racial bias and that the district court judge who actually heard the testimony, who had witnessed, you know, had heard about how this really horrific treatment of these animals that were beloved. Also, you know, there, there's all kind of cultural bias going on, right? The, the, there's some reference to the Navajo tradition is these animals having souls and being part of the family and applying a Western European through United States legal regime all that it gets devalued, whereas the local judge was really trying to put the plaintiffs in the position that they would have been but for the wrong. So you can win on liability and lose on damages. That's my point. You win on liability. There's no question in this case at all that the government broke the law, that the government harmed these families. But what are the damages? I think a second question is also like, and I know this is not a, like something that we consider, but like I feel like it ought to be, is how maliciously they did it. I mean, to send all these horses to the glue factory is not the same as like selling them off. I mean, this was really devastating and I think really purposefully calculated like, to create psychological like harm, right? To hurt their feelings. Well, I mean, that's a great point, actually. I hadn't, yeah. even, I hadn't thought of that, but yeah, for sure. You could have easily resold the horses. They didn't need to to destroy them. It was clearly done to to terrorize. And the other fact I think that goes into it is that this was done while their other case was pending. Yeah. So they clear the, na- the native people from the land, calling them trespassers. The native people sue to reclaim their right to the land. They eventually win, but before they win, the government goes and takes all of their animals and basically cripples the community. Pretty outrageous. It's a real like Robert Moses playbook, like, well, let's just clear the land and start putting up the freeway before mm-hmm. the lawsuit's done. And then once the freeway's there, great, you won yeah. the lawsuit. Who cares? Exactly. Ooh. Yeah, it's just depriving. Well, and and that is why remedies is so interesting, is that in this case, by so devaluing the loss to the plaintiffs, it's effectively a deprivation of the remedy. And so it's great you can win the win the lawsuit, but if you don't get an appropriate remedy, then you're not put back in the same position you would have been. And it it incentivizes again a law and policy point is if the remedy is inadequate, it incentivizes people to commit harms. We have a recent example actually from my own experience that I can share, and then we're going to take a break to a palate cleanser and do something funny. From my own experience, you know, COVID essentially shut down trial courts in California at least. No cases were going to trial. There were very few hearings. All trials were vacated. And so the entire court system ground to a halt for about two years. Um, It's still difficult to get a case to trial. It's difficult to get hearings. Hearings are delayed by months and months and months. So one of the effects of that, by raising the cost and the time to pursue a remedy in court, 
you are essentially incentivizing people to do things that would cause them to become defendants otherwise. Because you know, if I do this thing, I can get away with it. It's going to be years before they can catch me. And there's a good chance the plaintiff won't even bother. And so it's another version of advantages or, or you know, strong player advantage where a big business, knowing that the little people can't necessarily get them, do things that are questionable or even wrong because they know that the, the plaintiffs don't have an effective remedy. I can't remember what city I want to, I feel like it was like Kansas city or something like some place, like very particularly when COVID hit was like, we're going to keep the courts running. And they found like a marked difference in crime rates and obviously crime rates. There's all sorts of problems of how those are being reported anyways, Mm -hmm. but just the continuation of, in this case, the crime courts said, oh yeah, there's still going to be some possibility that, that things will be there will be some sort of uh, whatever justice yeah. served had an effect. Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, one of one area that I have, I'm you know not a criminal lawyer, but um, but in the civil context, one area where I can personally attest to a difference is in landlord tenant litigation because of the covid. First of all, their tenant eviction moratoriums that went into place um, for a long period of time and then also. Um, you know, all kinds of different things, basically making it impossible for landlords to evict um, and only can sue for breach of lease damages. There's a policy choice there. You know, someone's going to have to absorb the societal expense of of unemployment, of of housing loss and things like that. And we're going to decide to set the policy that we're going to protect tenants. Landlords are going to eat the cost we're going to try to make some exceptions for for small operators and it's a policy choice and i represent landlords i've represented tenants and you know it's it is a policy choice that puts a finger on the scale of one side or another and the fact that the courts are completely shut down essentially deprives landlords of a remedy for bad tenants so in the, in the effort to protect all tenants you're protecting you know ones who are you know innocent and it also has the effect of protecting ones that you know, maybe just decide that they just don't need to pay the rent because it's not that important. I have definitely read of some nightmare cases like of of people who are basically professional squatters who have have utilized this like these moratoriums just to devastating effects. Mm-hmm. So and, and it's crazy because these people are basically professionals at, 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 like, at doing this sort of terrible thing. And our laws are only facilitating that. So there's no way to like even even to approach getting them out of these homes or to evict them. You know, there's nothing that they can do, which is crazy to me. Yeah. Short of breaking yeah. the law. Right. Right. In California, which is my area, the law of unlawful detainer dates back to the mid 1800s. The idea behind the law at the time was it was the law of the gun. It was like, well, if you put up a fence and you have a gun, you're going to have the property. And so they created a special set of statutes, the unlawful detainer and a wrongful detainer. So you have a situation sometimes where someone forces somebody out, you know, at the end of a gun. Well, the even the, the landlord can be liable, even if they were entitled to recover possession. If they force somebody out by, you know, basically bringing in movers in the middle of the day and just moving their stuff out, the landlord could be sued, even though they would have the right to possession. So it puts landlords in a difficult position because if they have a problem tenant or if people are continually breaking in and squatting, you have to file a new lawsuit each time 
to evict the people and then they break back in and squat. So a uh, law is it's, you know, very imperfect. And also all of this, all of this remedy part really feels like the like kids game to me of like, would you for a million dollars eat poop <laughs> with ketchup and mustard on it? Like it's kind of, it's trying to set a money value on something which has no application to money, but just the mythical, well, that would put me at the same level I was mm-hmm. before yeah, I ate the poop. Exactly. What What's it worth to eat poop with ketchup? This is literally, this is like the University of Chicago's bread and butter. Their, their law and economics thing is like this idea that you can like affix like like psychological like litigation costs. Like how much would it cost for me to even bother to to pursue this kind of action? I don't, I don't know if I believe in it, but people really like are adamant that you could put a number value on pretty much anything. Yeah, those are the economists for you. What's the utility, yeah. right? I mean, I guess, That's you know, you could, it's, it's, there are things that are easier and harder to prove. Pain and suffering, emotional distress, punitive damages, uh, eating poop with ketchup. Those are all things it's hard to fix a money value to. We may need a palate cleanser from the poop and ketchup, but when we're going to take a quick break and after the palate cleanser, we'll do a little improv. And we're back. Today's palate cleanser, I have two for you. Uh, the first is very important news. NBC's beloved sitcom Night Court is back. I just want to put it out there that I, am available uh should you need a real comedy lawyer to make a guest appearance i don't have an agent i don't have a manager my rates are cheap so you know just you can contact me at max headroom esquire or at comedy lawyer on the socials if you don't remember night court aired from 1984 to 1992 beloved comedic judge harry t stone Um, His daughter will take the bench to oversee the night shift shenanigans. Good times. Our other palate cleanser today is that I want to shine a light on a specialty where we didn't think we needed one. And that is mybedbuglawyer.com. Attorney Brian Virag is regarded as the nation's leading bedbug lawyer. He's been nominated as trial lawyer of the year and street fighter of the year for his success obtaining jury verdicts for victims of bed bug exposure. He sues hotels, apartments, cruise ships, rental furniture, and vacation rental properties. So uh, if you've been bitten by bed bugs, mybedbuglawyer.com. Not available in all jurisdictions. What a great, like, realization of a niche. Like, this is like, when I moved to New York, it was like right, it was like maybe 15 years ago, and it was right as kind of like the articles were coming out of like, you're going to get bed bugs, don't touch anything on the street. And so that was like my constant fear. My roommate actually would put everything she ordered into the freezer for several months, like books and stuff. And we got the tent that would like heat things up slowly over like six hours to kill any bed bugs. It was a massive, massive fear. And so the idea that like somebody realized like we need to fight against every regal cinema that is no offense to regal <laughs> cinema, but that was the one that was known in in New York for a while. The the Union Square regal cinema had bed bugs and it was just like that anybody is fighting to keep this. <laughs> yeah. Well, I also think it's just a great example of the hyper specialization in this, you know, age of social media. Like you got to brand yourself. You got to have a mm-hmm. hyper special. Like it's not enough to be, a, you know, a business litigation attorney. You've got to be like, you spe- I specialize in LLCs with three members that are uh, involved in magazine publication. 
I, I remember once I was like, uh, right after law school, I was like talking with different firms and this one lady was saying she was a fashion lawyer. And I was like, what does that really entail? And she's like, in truth, it means that I look at lace patterns every day and look for like, if there's like three deviations or not, then there's like some sort of copyright issue. Or I couldn't believe it. I was like, you basically just spend all day looking at ladies' underwear. <laughs> that's that's your specialization. That's it. That's it. <laughs> so that's fashion law, I guess. Hey, everybody's got to have a specialty, I guess. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Our specialty here is uh, taking the law and making it funny. Yep. All right, Kelly. Happy birthday. Oh, we, I'm so excited. We got you what you've always wanted, a puppy. <gasps> oh, it's so cute. And look at its little eyes. It's so sweet. And a little button nose. I'm going to name it Casey. Okay, good. We're going to need to take a lot of pictures right away, just in case uh, anything happens to this puppy for uh, pain and suffering purposes. I want to create a paper trail that you love this puppy. That's right. Um, Your dad and I have been documenting the journey of this puppy all the way from the puppy mill we got it from. Um, We've been continuously videotaping it because we know having occupied many apartments, you need before photos if you're going to have before and after photos. But I just want to play with the puppy. Maybe I could just take it outside and we could go like hang out or I don't want to do this whole photo shoot. Well, we'll just, um, you know, we need to get evaluation points. So just can you just look right straight into the camera and just tell us uh, how happy are you on a scale of one to one million dollars? One million dollars. I love Casey. (sighs) Thank you. Okay, great. Let me just get you from this angle. Can you say that again? How happy are you? On a scale of one to one million dollars, I am a one million dollars worth of happy. I love Casey. This is a great dog. Right. Just to be clear, okay. this is your birthday. This is your seventh birthday, so that's one million dollars in today. Today's money. Right, Paul. We should just get a just get a newspaper shot right oh, now. Yeah, let's get a newspaper, a newspaper shot. Um, if we have a newspaper around, uh, the dog's chewing the newspaper. Okay, I'll get, oh. get a shot of that. Yeah. Okay. Okay. Guys, what would happen to Casey? I don't want anything bad to happen to Casey. I love Casey. Nothing bad is going to... Assuming yeah, I mean, nothing bad, yeah. yeah nothing bad. I don't think anything... We're not planning for anything bad to happen for Casey, but with that valuation, I mean, I don't know how careful I'm going to be. Oh, okay. I just feel like now I should I should keep Casey locked in, in my closet so that she's safe. You know, it seems like there's lots of dangerous people out there who might harm my beautiful dog. Right, and some of them may live no, in this house. closet dogs... Yes, but just as a warning, closet dogs rarely get large suffering uh, damages. Right. We're really focused on this valuation question. We know you love the puppy, but but we are thinking about the bottom line. You know, that that um, college isn't going to pay for itself, is what I'm saying. So I heard you got your kid a nude puppy. That's very brave of you. <laughs> Thanks. We thought, you know, might as well. This is the time. Let's, yeah. Let, yeah, let's get her a new puppy. Now she's old enough to learn how to care for the animal and, um, you know, feed it, toilet it, and also establish its value. Uh, I don't know. I run a puppy mill, and I'll tell you, I find them just terrible pests. Uh, I, I'd, ra- I'd happily exchange them for some glue if I could. Really? Yeah. In fact, I, I run a bit of a, a quiet operation. If, you, if you're if you sick of your dog and you want to pursue some sort of damage theory, uh, I can I can ma- magic that dog away. I'm not really sick of the 
dog, but could we find somebody wealthy to potentially abduct the dog? Mm. Bring it to you. Mm-hmm. You do the glue. Yeah. And we sue for tort damages. What do you think? Is that a good idea, Paul? I think that's a good idea. I think that's a great idea. That's a good idea. We just need to find someone to um, get the Welcome idea. Welcome to my yacht. Mm-hmm. I have heard that you need somebody to commit a minor crime. I have nothing better to do than eat grapes. So. <laughs> oh, yes. These grapes are delicious. I will say it's so nice to meet you, Captain uh, Moneybags. Thank you. Oh, I, I, now I was just curious, Captain Moneybags. You were born into money, I'm assuming, by based on the name Moneybags. Yes, uh, my first name is Mun, and my last name is Ibags. And of course, we invented Ebags, the electronic bags. Hmm. Grape. Um. <laughs> Delicious. Well, would you like to meet our 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 daughter's uh, puppy? His name is Casey. He's adorable. Arf arf. Wait a minute. Are you trying to trick me into committing a minor crime and then? Torting me into oblivion? It wouldn't necessarily be a crime. It could be a civil lawsuit. Ooh. And in which case, you know, uh, the, uh, the there would just be money damage. There's no prison time. But don't you think this dog, Casey, is something you would want to steal and sell for glue? Ooh, this sounds like a bet. And like any very, very rich man, my favorite type of bet is remedial value bets i i believe i could get away with this uh, stealing a dog for i'm gonna say three hundred dollars let's do it give me the dog mom dad where's casey uh paul do you want to explain well i mean i just you know i'm implicated so there's just a, a trail of grapes and gold leading from my closet out to the doorway. If this works, we're going to be able to get you a lot of Casey's. Okay. I want you to keep that in mind. Oh, wait. Are you crying? Get the tears. Get the tears. Get the tears. <laughs> you know, I'm not good with emotions. I'm not good with emotions. I, I, I... But Casey would. Casey would lie next to me in bed at night and read me stories and would sometimes would defend me from bullies. Whoa, 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 whoa. Can you just say that right into the cam? Just say that into the camera. Just turn this direction just a little bit, just a little bit. Okay. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Go ahead. Tears. Mm-hmm. Casey, Casey defended me from bullies at school. Some of the kids said my parents were, were money grubbing and, and that I, and I was a loser and Casey would bite them. <laughs> Wait, but how do you feel now that you're never going to see Casey again? Hmm? Devastated. I no longer want to work or go do homework or go to school. I don't want to go to college. And you were going to be an astronaut and make millions of dollars as an astronaut on TV. Isn't that right? I was almost certain to become an astronaut. Yes, that's correct. And your pain and suffering, how would you rate it on a scale of one to $100 million? I would say $100 million. Wait, okay, can we just get this from another angle? Just get this from another angle. Okay. Right into the camera. Just How would you rate your pain on a scale of $1 to $100 million? $100 million. Okay, that's good. That's good. I had a pretty good framing on that one. Can Can we get Casey back now? Ah. Uh, um... Ask your father. I mean, you guys just, you just 
had her kidnapped, right? But she we could get her back. Oh, we were not involved with the kidnapping in any way whatsoever. Oh, were we? no. no, not at all. No, 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 not at all. No, 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 no. <clears throat> Actually, can you say that right into the camera? You know, uh, uh, my mom and dad were not involved in the kidnapping in any way whatsoever. My mom and dad were not involved in the kidnapping of my beloved pet, Casey, who used to lick my tears when I was sad at all. All right. You saw a cap. You saw a, a yacht captain come into your room, didn't you? Yes, and he was trailing grapes and gold from his his luxuriously appointed suit. Okay, we're going to need to take that again, but you need to start by saying, I saw a captain of a ship. Okay, so that's not like you're answering a question, like you're just saying it. So what happened? I saw a captain of a ship. He looked very wealthy. He had on a gold suit, and he was trailing grapes and gold everywhere he walked, and he walked into my bedroom. And were you frightened? I was very frightened, but also intrigued about how he had so much gold and also grapes. All right, hear ye, hear ye. I will now give my judgment in the case of uh, Sad Little Family versus Mr. Mun Ebags. More grapes, Your Honor? More grapes? Yes, please. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Now, I, of course, am impartial. I am am Judge Ebags. Um... Uh, only related to Mr. Moneybags by being twins. Objection. Uh, the most Objection. Tender- yes. Objection. Yes. I-, I would like the record to reflect that uh, uh, your brother, your twin brother is laying across the bench, directly putting grapes into your mouth and rubbing you on the nose. <laughs> and you seem to be enjoying yourself. Um... I will overrule that objection. I don't seem to be enjoying myself. I am enjoying myself. Um, Accuracy is important. Now, I find that the damages done are well into the millions. A yacht, which was once unsullied by a puppy, has now been puppied and never again can Mr. Moneybags sell his yacht and say, there's been ne'er a puppy upon this yacht. The depreciation and value of this yacht is quite extreme. So I, I am going to award reverse damages. And sad little family, you now owe, let me see, uh, carry the zero, uh, $100 million to Mr. Moneybags. But he he stole my dog. <sighs> But he was a closet dog. He was a dog in a closet. I guess there's nothing I can do to show how individually I was really hurt by this. Well, just say into the camera how much you hurt. When the judge found against me and ruled that I had to pay money for to the guy who stole my dog, it really hurt my feelings. How much did it hurt your feelings on a scale of one to one billion dollars? $200 million. Oh, I think we captured it. So, <clears throat> Welcome uh, to the appeals court. I am Hiram E. Bags, unrelated to my two uh, twin brothers. Now, in this appeals court, it says that you have appealed and said that the original finding was wrong. Yes, and also we've sued the original trial judge for emotional distress damages for ruling against us. Yeah. Ooh, the old double suit. I love it. It's a twist. Oh, grape. Oh. 
Oh, oh no. So, oh, do I hear grumbling in my court? We have a no grumbling rule. I, I would just like to go on the record to say that grape sales, since you were put, taken onto this case, have gone up astronomically. And I think that that's a form of activism. Honestly, I think that you're mostly in it for the grape industry. And and I would just like to say that um, I'm going to just let my seven-year-old daughter advocate this case. She's clearly far more uh, qualified than I am. I, 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 you know, do have an interest in the outcome, but um, yeah, I'm just not the advocate she is. So I'll defer to her grape uh, market analogy and also some law and economics theory, which she's been studying um, in her second grade class. But that I no longer can study because I'm too depressed about Casey. Oh. Oh. The judge is oh, no. choking. Oh. Choking. Oh. This. Okay, I know the Heimlich maneuver. Casey taught me. <laughs> wait, wait! Before you off uh, the Heimlich maneuvers, uh, Hiram, will you be ruling in our favor? Mm. Not, not. Oh, oh. oh yes, oh. absolutely. Yes. <laughs> oh. <laughs> <laughs> And you're uh, sorry. I know I said I wasn't going to be saying anything, but um, I just want to know what the ruling is going to be. Well, sneak peek of the ruling. Now that I can breathe again, I am double reversing all damages. So the damages now go back to sad little girl and Yay. her family. Grape. Oh. <laughs> and I'm sorry to my twin brothers, but them's the grapes. Speaking of twin brothers, this is Casey's twin brother, Lacey. Arf, arf. You had another dog? <laughs> you are... Well, Your Honor, I, if, if I may be, uh, I know I don't want to interrupt my daughter too much, but we did need to mitigate our damages. Understood. And, and your, bro your brother never bothered to ask about the availability of other dogs at the lower court proceeding, so... <laughs> Oh, darling, you are such an expert in civil procedure. Just saying it's not properly on the record. <laughs> well, Paul, I think Monaco is going to be delightful this year. Don't you agree? Yes, absolutely. We have to go. That was such a stroke of genius getting that dog really, truly thoughtful. And I so appreciate you. Thank you. Wait. Oh, mummy, daddy, I'm so pleased with my new puppy. Everything I've ever wanted. Well, I got everything I've ever wanted, which is tons of money and gold bags. And I was able to pay for elocution lessons. Now I sound <laughs> like I'm even richer than I was. Well, sad little family. Now we're a happy little family. Let's all go and put it all on red. Arf, arf. <laughs> Welcome back to Remedy, the game show, where we test what you are willing to do for how much money. Your host, as always, is me, an insane billionaire. <laughs> now, our first contestant is, of course, oh, we have Roger. Roger, go ahead and come on up to the stage. Oh, I'm so excited. I'm such a fan of this game. I've been watching it for years. Roger, if I were to pull your pants down, what's known as a pantsing, how much would it cost 
for you to feel like you had your pants back up again. Well, you know, it's funny you should ask this. I'm going to throw a screwball at you and tell you that I actually would pay you to pants me. I love the air conditioning down in my <laughs> southern border, if you know what I'm saying. So I'll pay you $100 to pants me right now. But I, I like to see pain in people, Roger. That's why I have the game show. Well, what if I were to hit you in the head with a mallet? Well, Imagine yourself now unmalleted. Well, I'll tell you something. One thing it reminds me of growing up. You know, my father used to throw a mallet at me every single day until he was, uh, you know, he lost a finger in the meat grinder and left the family for the lady down the street. So, you know, I would say I'd gladly pay you at least $1,000 per malleting. And uh, I would be owing you money if you were to mallet me. So, um, so it'd be negative 1000 per mallet. I will find a way to hurt you, Roger. <laughs> that is what I got money for. What if you were to be launched in the air 30 feet, not enough to kill you, but enough to really hurt on the way back down? And when you land, you're going to land in a vat of lemon juice. Well, gee, you know, it's so... You're three for three. You keep coming up with things that are apparently hurtful, but things that I actually, in my strange way, enjoy. A lemon juice reminds me of the old granny's farm where we used to jump into lemon juice as a kid. So, you know, you'd be throwing me right back to my memories of my childhood. I'd have to pay you at least $300 per time you threw me 30 feet into the air and landed lemon juice. That's $1 per foot in the air. So if you did 100 feet, it'd be $100 and so forth. You I, keep. I'm quite good at this game, I will say. You are hurting me. <gasps> I need uh, some sort of remedial action. I, I'm not used to this. I'm used to throwing my money at problems and fixing them. Oh, well, now you're making me feel sad. Now, that's a painful area, actually. And I, I would like to be paid money for making you feel sad. All I'd like right. $10,000 would be the remedy for me. For you to pay me for me making you feel sad. Here's 10,000 fresh off the stack. Ooh, that pain felt good. Boy, thank you. I'd be happy to make you feel sad again, provided you're willing to pay me money. This is taking a bizarre twist. <laughs> Every episode of Remedy <laughs> does. And that's why we have another contestant. Now, of course, here we have the Remedy Off round two. I'm, now, Violet, welcome to the stage. Oh, you're Thank ready. You. Fantastic. I've never been more ready to be remedied in my whole life. Now, Violet, unbeknownst to you, we've taken your house, dug a hole in it, and lowered it by four feet. So now when you enter your house every single day, you're going to fall down just four feet. Just what? enough to be annoying. But that's my dream home. Mm, now it's a little bit lower. That's now we all know right how through. round two it'll sink right through. Now, of course, in round two, we try to see who can get the least remedy for the most pain. Roger, how much could we sink your house? You know, it's funny you should mention that. You know, I did grow up on a houseboat which sunk 
ironically on oh, my 12th God. birthday. So should you make my home sink, it would remind me, send me back to my childhood and my sinking houseboat remind me of old grandma Fanny, the other side of the family we had one of the farm and one of the houseboat. And, uh, you know, her screams for help on my 12th birthday as a houseboat sunk with her on it. So I would gladly have to pay you at least uh, $25,000 were you to make my house sink. I mean, negative $25,000 would be my remedy is what I'm saying. Well, well, um, I actually was, um, uh, my, my mother was buried alive during uh, uh, the birth process. And I, I was born uh, in a very claustrophobic underground situation, which is deep trauma, very deep trauma. I, I'm very claustrophobic now. And the idea of being swallowed up by the earth is a natural fear. So I would say at least $50,000, negative 50000 all right, Violet is in the lead, of course, because, as we all know, famously, she was born <laughs> underground. <laughs> we all remember the maternity ward that was swallowed whole and the miracle babies that <laughs> popped out of the ground from it. The Cabbage Patch children, they were known as. But now we're on to round three. Who can get... A zero remedy. What is the thing that you will take where you will be exactly the same before and after monetarily, even if scarred permanently? Violet, you're up first. A lobotomy. <laughs> we have a lobotomist <laughs> on hand, of course, just for that. Now, an interesting uh, uh, conundrum because the person you are after is quite literally half the person you were before. So, even if you would incur damages, you may not realize that you need those damages. Roger, you're up next. Well, as everybody knows, I was lobotomized back in 22 and uh, I haven't been the same since. So, I would think put me back to the zero level, kind of like so that I don't need a remedy at all, I think is what you're saying. I don't really know. I don't think too well. But I think it would be a college education. would pretty much be a negligible effect on me. I would be the same before and after a college education. And so, therefore, my remedy is zero for college education. Famously, college educations help regrow half of your brain. That's the motto of Princeton. Princeton, we make you twice as smart. So if you ever had a lobotomy, we will put you back at zero. Well, so does that mean I won? I think right now we have a tie game because the cost of a lobotomy is $80,000 per year. It's a four-year procedure. Right. True. I do that. So we are going into sudden remedy round, sudden <laughs> remedy round, where I myself go on the remedy block. Okay. Okay. Uh, so... Mr. Game Show host, I forgot your name due to the lobotomy, etc. Uh, Mr. Game Show, so I would just like to know uh, what uh, would it take for me to be able to shake your hand without sanitizing my hand first? One trillion dollars. I've never touched a poor person and I don't intend to. Um, what would it cost for me to touch the other contestant's hand unsanitized 
after he touches your hand. That would. <coughs> oh my god! <coughs> Disgusting. I'm choking on my own saliva here. <laughs> oh. Grapes. Oh, oh. <laughs> no. I, I tried to put a grape in to shove the saliva down. Now I'm double choking. Well, I think we would be made whole if you were to just die on the spot. So seems like I think that's right. Yeah. <laughs> well, stay tuned next week for Remedy, hosted by me, Roger, and my new friend Violet. Let's shake hands on it, Violet. Sorry, right. I haven't washed my hands or sanitized them. <laughs> oh, oh, wow. What a texture. Hello. Are, are you a bed bug and you need representation? Contact me, the bed bug lawyer. Now, to be clear, I am not the lawyer that sues people for contact to bed bugs. That is somebody else. I am a separate bed bug lawyer. But if you need representation, contact me. Have um, you been injured by a bed bug lawyer? Are you, is your bed bug represented by a lawyer that sued you due to you being bitten by a bed bug in your home and then you got aggressively sued by the bed bug's lawyer? If you've been sued by the bed bug's lawyer, I'm the bed bug's lawyer's lawyer. Call you- me, Bob, the bed bug lawyer lawyer, to sue your bed bug's lawyer's lawyer. Are you frustrated by the inability to bring a bed bug related action into court? Are you waiting long and preposterously long docket times just to arrive and put your case, which is very, very important and bed bug related, in front of a judge? Then call me. I'm TV's bed bug lawyer. I'll see your case on TV. I am neither a judge nor am I trained to be one, but I will see your bed bug related case and I will resolve it. Let's not give these bed bugs a roadmap to evasion. Is this you? Were you convinced that you would go on TV and finally reach adjudication with your bed bug lawyer related problems? And now you find yourself just waiting in a green room year after year after year, waiting for your number to be called. Well, then contact me. My name is Stanny Stan, and I am the Bedbug TV lawyer lawyer. I will sue anybody who claims to be a lawyer on TV now. Now, to be clear, I am not myself a lawyer, but in commercials, I do claim to be one. Call Stanny Stan at wait 1 800 Stan Stan. Stan Stan. The last end, don't type because it's okay. You understand how phones work. Call me now. Uh, hey, Stinky. Have you been watching this crazy stuff on TV? Yeah, Pinky, I have. Well, I I feel like maybe we should stop biting people because these lawyers and the bed bug lawyers and the lawyer TV, but it's just confusing. Maybe we should get into another line of work. What do you think, Stinky? It's yeah, let's do it. I got a lot. I've got a lot of other talents, you know. I know you were talking about getting into voiceover. Yeah, I feel like I've got a good voice for a radio, you know, a radio advertisements. Like a morning shock jock. I think you yeah. had that a couple of auditions. Maybe you do that instead of biting people because it's also a lawyer thing. It's just it's this this country's being ruined by litigation. I think what are you be- crazy bed bugs talking about? I hear you over here just talking and talking. You're not biting anybody. No, we we we've been watching TV and there's this this whole like meta level that it's gotten to, and it just doesn't make it sense anymore. We're thinking, thinking we need to get into a different line of work. He wants to get into t- into voiceover. 
Oh, geez, you don't want to be bitbugs and bite people anymore? That just seems like the only thing we're supposed to do. Are you a bedbug who has been convinced to take voiceover <laughs> lessons by your so-called friend, another bedbug? You could be entitled to damages, L- damages including up to five ounces of blood a year in perpetuity. Contact me, 1-800-PERSON-WHO-SUCCEEDED-AT-VOICEOVER-TRAINING.COM. My website is 1-800-PERSON-WHO-SUCCEEDED-AT-VOICEOVER-TRAINING.COM. All rise. The uh, bedbug voiceover court is now in session. Honorable Judge Bitey McBiteLot presiding. We have here the case of Pinky versus uh, Cheeky. Pinky uh, sta- uh, case. Uh, the docket reflects that Pinky has sued Stinky for advising. Uh, no, sorry. Stinky has sued Pinky for advising him to commence voice lessons. And as all uh, voiceover court uh, cases start, we will now, I, I, the bailiff, will lead us in warm-up exercises. Manala Thavaza. Manala Thavaza. Manala I love unique New York. I love New York. Judge, the court is now warm. It is your court. All may sit down. Go ahead and take a little sit there. Well, having read the briefs, I I have to say that this is a compelling case. Uh, And I'm going to order. I'm going to order the bedbugs to go on the game show remedy. I know it's an unusual remedy for a situation like this, but this is an unusual case. And I'm going to go ahead and send this case out to be on the game show remedy. That is my final ruling. My geez. Is the host of remedy still alive? He's not, but uh, the show is still on the air for some reason. And I I don't know. They just keep running reruns. So this is a, you know, it's not perfect system. The judicial system's not perfect, okay? You know, it's like they always say, it's good at moving money around. Do you not want to put your faith in the justice system to give you the kind of uh, results that you deserve? Clone your pets and loved ones instead. Then you can always make sure that you make yourself whole. If you should lose someone, a loved one, an animal, we'll have another one waiting for you. Something the justice system can never provide. Call us at Clones R Us. 555-5555. Um, Paul, Paul, can you come in here and look at our daughter's dog? There's what? It's a very strange thing going on in the back of the dog. Just don't just quiet, don't wake her up. Yeah, what is this? Oh just look through this magnifying glass. There's all these uh it's like a light, little teeny tiny lights and cameras and yeah. Is it, I, I think it's a bed bug court. I do you think we could maybe film it. Oh, I mean, I've got the tiny camera. How much do you think we can make? We could probably make that. I mean, at least a couple hundred bucks. Yeah. No, let's. Okay. What are you guys doing? Oh. Uh, nothing. Nothing. 
Uh, we're just, You're not um, going to steal Lacey, are you? We're just, we're petting Lacey. We're just checking Lacey for lice and um, uh, fleas and insects. And uh, Do you mind just tidying up your room just for a minute? Because we... Sure. Um, yeah. All right. Let's just get the shot real quick while she's out. <clears throat> Excuse me, little bed bugs. What's what's it worth to you to not get squished? Mm, yeah. uh, this is a bizarre situation, but you know, I'll easily pay like five, ten dollars to not get squished. Yeah, I got I got about seven dollars in my bed bug bank account. Uh, I'd give seven dollars to not get squished. Wow. Oh, geez, it's been hard to be a bed bug lately. You know, there's not been a lot of voiceover work or biting, so I don't have much much cash handy. Well, I think that decides it, Paul. Don't you think? We need the twelve dollars. I think you're right. All right. I guess we'll just uh, put this up on YouTube. Welcome back to YouTube, the television channel where we show random YouTube clips. Oh, we've already run out of money and uh, our channel has already been pulled. But you can subscribe to us on Paramount Disney Plus, <laughs> where we have been combined into a new channel. Signing off, it's me, a bed bug. I took voiceover lessons and I no longer sound like the squeaky little bed bug I was. Since the channel was canceled, this is me saying goodbye. And goodbye. <laughs> All right. Well, uh, that was a journey as always. I appreciate <laughs> the exploration on many levels. I don't know if I could diagram where we went there, but um, that's a that's something that maybe um, Curtis will cover on Improv Beat by Beat. Bizarro World Edition. I feel like that was a, a how most lawsuits go, right? Mm -hmm. It kinda, is. Yeah. It's usually, you know, uh, there's usually a lawsuit and then a lawsuit about having the lawsuit. And then uh, usually voiceover training comes in there at some point in time. All right. Well, um, that's our show, folks. Shameless self-promotion from my two co-hosts. Um, let's have Kristen start first. Where can people find you? I am performing very frequently with my troupe, uh, Sorry for Partying, here in Austin. But also on the internet, uh, there's a couple great storytelling videos up on testifyatx.com. Thank you, Kristen. And Curtis? If you are in Los Angeles, you can see me with my current UCB Herald team, Ghost. And you can also see me performing with Megaplex, the improvised movie. You can also find my SAT book, uh, Laser Focus on SAT Math, on the internet. And you can find me anywhere at Actually Curtis. And oh, and you can find my improv podcast, Improv Beat by Beat. Awesome. I'd like to thank my crew, Curtis and Kristen, for joining me today on our journey into madness. I'm Billy D. Clerk. I am on the socials at Comedy Lawyer. That's my new social media handle, including Truth Social, Parlor, Twitter, Instagram, TikTok. I've not put very much up on any of those, but, uh, you know, it is what it is. I'm, I'm ready for the apocalypse. Bye. <laughs>